New York, this is Democracy Now! July 27th will mark the 70th anniversary of the armistice in which North Korean and American military commanders signed to halt fighting the three years of war and promised to return within 90 days to negotiate a peace settlement. Well, that hasn't happened yet. As the U.S. sends a nuclear-armed submarine to South Korea for the first time since the 1980s, peace activists are gathering in Washington, D.C., to call on President Biden and Congress to officially end the Korean War. We'll speak to Christine Ahn of Women Cross DMZ and historian Bruce Cummings. Then to the assassination of Malcolm X, an eyewitness to Malcolm's shooting reveals for the first time he overheard a New York police officer ask about Malcolm's assassin, is he with us? We'll hear Mustafa Hassan describe what he saw and heard February 21st, 1965 in the Audubon Ballroom and talk about why he was never called to testify. The reason that they failed to call me would have been that my testimony uh, would have uh, changed the outcome of the trial. It would have pointed a finger of guilt at the establishment. We'll speak to civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who's representing Malcolm X's family, who are planning to file a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the FBI, the CIA, New York City and state, and the NYPD, as well as the district attorney's office for concealing evidence of their involvement in the assassination. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A new study published in Nature Communications finds Atlantic Ocean currents could collapse as soon as 2025 due to climate change, triggering catastrophic conditions around the globe. What's known as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation carries warm water from the tropics to the North Atlantic and sends colder water south along the ocean floor. Floor. The warming planet's expected to push this phenomenon over a tipping point as fresh water from melting Arctic ice disrupts and weakens the current. This could set in motion rapid and disastrous changes to the climate, including disrupting rains that feed crops for billions of people across South Asia, Latin America and West Africa, a drop in temperatures in northern Europe, higher temperatures in the tropics, and faster sea level rise along the coasts of North America and Europe. It also further threatens the Amazon and Antarctic ice sheets. This comes as water temperatures in Florida soar past 100 degrees in the ocean, triggering signs of mass coral bleaching and die-off. The water in the Florida Keys hit a world-record high of 101.1 degrees Fahrenheit this week. In immigration news, a federal judge in California has blocked the Biden administration from enforcing a measure prohibiting migrants from seeking asylum at the southern border without first applying for protection in a country they pass through on their journey to the United States. But U.S. District Judge John Tiger has delayed his ruling for 14 days, keeping the policy in place while giving Biden officials time to file an appeal. Tiger's decision was praised by immigration rights advocates who've condemned President Biden for supporting asylum bans similar to those enacted by President Trump. 
The new asylum rules went into effect in May, replacing the contested pandemic-era Title 42 policy, which was used to expel nearly 3 million asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process. Biden's measure also forces migrants to make their asylum appointments on a Customs and Border Protection smartphone app that applicants say is riddled with issues and raises serious concerns over privacy. The ACLU said, quote, the ruling is a victory, but each day the Biden administration prolongs the fight over its illegal ban, many people fleeing persecution and seeking safe harbor for their families are instead left in grave danger. In Ukraine, former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, who was freed from Russian imprisonment in a prisoner swap last year, was reportedly injured while fighting in Ukraine and transferred to Germany for treatment. The Biden administration clarified Reed was, quote, not engaged in any activities on behalf of the U.S. government, unquote. Amidst concerns, the news could jeopardize any ongoing or future negotiations to release other U.S. citizens imprisoned in Russia. Meanwhile, Russian media reports the prominent sociologist and dissident Boris Kagolitsky was detained and is being charged with calling for terrorism. The charges could land him in prison for up to seven years, according to his lawyer. Kagolitsky appeared on Democracy Now! last December. Russia is losing the war, and Russia is going to lose the war inevitably. So this is uh, a very— uh, very dramatic, uh, dramatic news for for the Russian public. Uh, but now it is what is happening is that Russian public is beginning to understand this reality. In related news, Russian lawmakers approved legislation Tuesday that would increase the upper age limit for military conscription from 27 to 30 and ban drafted Russians from leaving the country. In Yemen, the United Nations has begun pumping over a million barrels of oil from a decaying supertanker anchored in the Red Sea. The ship was abandoned off the coast of Yemen in 2015 at the start of the U.S.-backed Saudi-led war against Houthi rebels. Experts warned of a potentially catastrophic oil spill due to the ship's corrosion and lack of maintenance. This is U.N. Humanitarian Coordinator David Gressley. We do expect that this will take approximately 19 days to move the 1.1 million barrels off of the off of the vessel. Primary security threats have been fully mitigated in this case. Um, the, the primary issue, of course, is that this is a country still at war, um, a civil war, but also within the region. And that causes a great deal of distrust and a lot of more uh, scrutiny from a security point of view. In Tunisia, hundreds of protesters rallied in Tunis Tuesday to mark the two years since President Kais Saeed dissolved parliament, ramped up his power grab in what many have called a coup. Protesters are also demanding he released 20 imprisoned opposition figures. This is Lajmi Lurimi of the Opposition Salvation Front Party. The situation now is a state of frustration and despair among the citizens generally. This is the result of K. Said seizing power with an iron fist, consolidating all authorities in one hand. The unfortunate reality is that demolishing democracy does not foster development or stability. In Cambodia, Prime Minister Hun Sen announced he'll step down in three weeks and transfer power to his oldest son, Hun Mane. The widely expected move comes just days after Hun Sen won re-election in a race where he ran virtually unopposed after suppressing the only viable challenger. 
Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's BJP is facing a no-confidence vote in parliament in a bid by opposition parties to force Modi to address the escalating violence in the northeastern state of Manipur. Modi is not at risk of losing the vote, as the BJP and allies hold a clear majority. But anger has been mounting over the Hindu nationalist leaders in action, as more than 130 people have been killed and 60,000 displaced since ethnic violence between the majority Meite and minority Kuki community broke out in May. Last week, a video of two kooky women being paraded naked and assaulted by a mob triggered widespread outrage and protests. It's an attack against all vulnerable women of this country. India is supposed to be the fraternity. India is supposed to be the plurality. India is supposed to be the more vibrant and acceptance in its culture and tradition. The whole world, women have bowed their heads and condemning this. This is highly unacceptable. A new report by an international panel details the involvement of Mexican armed forces in the 2014 disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa. The interdisciplinary group of independent experts said in its findings that the Mexican Army, Navy, police and intelligence agencies knew the students' whereabouts, including the night they were ambushed by local police and federal military forces and disappeared. The panel has also accused Mexican government officials under the previous administration of lying in their initial investigation, hiding key evidence and using torture to obtain false testimonies in the case. This is a member of the international panel speaking Tuesday. The site of the study, the streets that we have seen before of Iguala on September 26th and 27th, showed that government forces were present. They participated and did not protect. They also know and knew what happened. The concealment of that information has contributed not only to the concealing of government responsibilities, but it has constituted in itself a responsibility of the state in the disappearance of these young men. Back in the United States, Northwestern universities in the midst of a growing scandal over abuse of hazing practices in its athletic departments. On Monday, a volleyball player sued Northwestern over alleged retaliation after she reported abuse. This follows lawsuits by former Northwestern quarterback Lloyd Yates, who spoke out at a news conference in Chicago last week. There was a code of silence that felt insurmountable to break. And speaking up could lead to consequences that affected playing time and can warrant further abuse. Normalizing this culture became a necessity. The abuse, in, the abuse of hazing was so entrenched in the Northwestern football co culture that even some of our coaches took part in it. The graphic, sexually intense behavior was well known throughout the program. We were physically and emotionally beaten down, and some players have contemplated suicide as a result. The abusive culture was especially devastating for many players of color. Northwestern's head football coach, Pat Fitzgerald, has been fired in the wake of the sexual hazing revelations. Attorney Ben Crump says Northwestern's athletic departments normalized a pattern and practice of physical and mental abuse and that some of the students were minors when the abuse took place. We'll speak to Ben Crump about this and other stories later in the broadcast. UPS workers reached a historic tentative deal on a new contract, averting what would have been a highly disruptive strike at the end of the month. The Teamsters Union said the deal, affecting some 340,000 members, includes higher wages for all workers, creates more full-time jobs, guarantees air conditioning and vehicles, among other health and safety measures.
Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Virginia Congressmember Bobby Scott introduced the Raise the Wage Act of 2023 Tuesday, which would increase the federal minimum wage from $7.25 an hour by 2028. The minimum wage was last raised 14 years ago. Sanders called 725 a starvation wage, adding, quote, in the year 2023, a job should lift you out of poverty, not keep you in it. Texas Congressmember Greg Kassar held an eight-hour thirst strike on Tuesday on the steps of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard, which includes mandatory water breaks for workers. Over the course of the hot and humid day, where temperatures reached the high 80s in D.C., elected officials, advocates and workers spoke in support of legislation demanding heat protections. This is Fernando Arista, an electrical worker from Austin, speaking out against a recently passed Texas law banning water breaks. Proponents of this bill, they talk about business. They say it'll help out business and it'll help out the Texas economy. Well, we workers are part of the Texas economy. And if it'll help out businesses, it'll help out businesses at the exploitation of workers. Up to 2,000 workers in the U.S. die every year from heat exposure. In related news, Texas prisons recently raised the cost of bottled water sold in commissaries by 50 percent as incarcerated people endure an unrelenting heat wave without air conditioning. Prisoners say they have to buy water because the tap is unsafe, with one person likening it to sewage water. And Juan Ramos, former Philadelphia City Council member, founder and leader of the Philadelphia chapter of the Young Lords, has died at the age of 71 after a battle with Alzheimer's. Ramos was just two when his family moved from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia, became active in civil rights in high school. He spoke out against racism, police brutality, as well as poverty and housing issues in communities of color. Ramos later helped lead efforts in the Puerto Rican community to defeat Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo's attempt to eliminate term limits. He went on to found and lead the Puerto Rican Alliance, which fought for bilingual education against police brutality and spearheaded a large squatters movement in abandoned government-owned houses. This led to over 150 Puerto Rican families eventually winning titles to those homes. He also served as a Philadelphia council member, a union organizer, and a church deacon. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the U.S. sends a nuclear-armed submarine to South Korea for the first time since the 1980s. Stay with us. Bring in the peace in our lifetime. No more. 
In Our Lifetime by Morley and Chris Bruce. The song was written for this week's national mobilization to end the Korean War. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, tensions are escalating again on the Korean Peninsula. The United States has deployed a nuclear-armed submarine, the USS Kentucky, to South Korea for the first time since the 80s. Last week, South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol, became the first foreign leader to ever board a U.S. nuclear-armed submarine. Meanwhile, on Monday, North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the sea to protest the U.S. On Monday, North Korea fired those missiles into the sea hours after another U.S. submarine, the nuclear-propelled USS Annapolis, arrived at a port on Jeju Island. This all comes 70 years after the signing of the Korean armistice, which was signed July 27, 1953. While the agreement halted active fighting in the Korean War, a peace agreement was never signed. This week, peace activists are gathering in Washington, D.C. for a national mobilization to call on President Biden and Congress to officially end the Korean War and replace the armistice with a peace agreement. We're joined now by two guests. Bruce Cummings is a professor of history at University of Chicago, author of several books on Korea, including Korea's Place in the Sun, a Modern History, and North Korea, Another Country. But first, we go to Christine Ahn, founder and executive director of Women Cross DMZ, a global movement of women mobilizing to end the Korean War, also the coordinator of the campaign Korea Peace Now. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Christine, talk about the significance of this week, of this date, and what exactly you're calling for in Washington, D.C., before you head off to the State Department after this interview. Thank you so much, Amy and Juan, for having us. Um, it is so significant that hundreds of people from across the country, uh, multi-generational Korean-Americans, many from divided families, humanitarian aid workers with on-the-ground experience in North Korea, uh, academics. Uh, we have a conference with uh, nuclear scientists Siegfried Hecker, Bruce Cummings, Dan Leaf, who is a three-star general, who wrote in a New York Times op-ed that it's time to end the Korean War and make peace with North Korea. So it is a, a phenomenal gathering of a broad and diverse coalition um, many longstanding Korean-American organizations that have been working for peace, but also on uh, social and economic justice, all coming together. And so we will be having a congressional press conference tomorrow. It's actually hosted by Barbara Lee, who you may know was the only member of Congress to vote against giving Bush authorization to use force in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was because of her father— who served in the Korean War. And in the moments before she had to make that decision, he told her there is nothing that cut good that comes from war. And so that is what the incentive for her to take that bold and brave stance. So we're having a press conference. We're having a Han and healing circle with a renowned dancer, Dohee Lee and Joseph Han, who won um, numerous rewards for his book called Nuclear Family. And then we have a White House rally that begins at 5 p.m. with uh, renowned social media star Nick Cho, uh, your Korean dad, Josephine Lee, 
Um, and actually, David Kim, who ran for Congress in Koreatown, is running again. He'll be also speaking at the White House. And then on Friday, we have a conference at George Washington University. And many folks can um, join virtually. You just go to the koreapeaceaction.org, and um, there is a schedule there. But we really would love hundreds, thousands of people to gather with us. We'll march from the White House and towards the Korean War Memorial, where we will honor all the lives that have been killed, not just the 36,000 U.S. soldiers, but the over 2 million, mostly Korean civilians. And, you know, we're going to be carrying uh, photos, portraits of the people that we've lost, our ancestors, because 70 years is just far too long. And as the situation grows more and more dangerous and tense, this has to end. And this is not just a war between North and South Korea. This is America's oldest war. And we, the people in the United States, have our, our responsibility to pressure our government to do the right thing and end this war. And, Christy, most of the people listening to seeing, viewing this show were not even born when the Korean War erupted. Could you uh, talk about how it began and why and why we still have uh, about 28,000 troops, uh, American troops stationed in South Korea. Well, the Korean Peninsula, my parents were actually born in the 1920s during Japanese occupation. And so from 1910 to 1945, Korea was colonized by the Jap Japanese. And at the end of World War II, in the defeat of Japan, uh, the Soviets and the Americans were scrambling, right? And so the Korean Peninsula was a place where actually the front line of the Cold War. And so it was actually two uh, U.S. Uh, young defense officials who were assigned to basically divide up the peninsula. And Charles Bonesteel and Dean Rusk, later Secretary of State, tore a page from the National Geographic and literally drew a line across the 38th parallel, giving north of it to uh, the Soviets and the U.S. keeping um, south of it and Seoul. And that was Truman, who then sent a memo to Stalin, and Stalin, Stalin accepted. But really, I would say that it's the U.S. that, you know, divided the peninsula. And we held military governments in South Korea from 1945 to 1948. And then, you know, Kim Il-sung emerged as the leader in the North. And then the U.S. installed Syngman Rhee to be the president of South Korea. And then in that period, this is where Bruce is really helpful. Um, he has shown that there, you know, most of the official narrative is that the Korean War began on June 25th, 1950, when the North Koreans crossed over into South Korea, crossed the 38th parallel. Well, in fact, what Bruce and other historians have found is that there were incursions back and forth, actually, for a long period of time. But it was at that moment that uh, when the North Koreans crossed into South Korea that the United States, um, under President Truman, basically called for uh, not authorization to go to war, but a limited police action, went to the Security Council, got uh, overwhelming votes in support of the U.S. intervening under what is called a U.N. command. And it is not a United Nations command, as it uh, the ruse is. It is actually a unified command. 
and uh, but they still use the UN flag, and that what is basically the beginning of the Korean War. I want to turn to a clip from the documentary Crossings, which is now streaming on PBS World Channel. This is Ri Oki testifying at the Women's Peace Symposium in Pyongyang about her experience surviving being fired at by U.S. soldiers during the Korean War. The bullet mercilessly cut through my wrist. Without thinking, I lifted my hand and grabbed the door handle. The soldiers shut my hand again, a child's left hand. I fainted and fell to the ground. It was more frightening than even death. Today, at this gathering of women, I appeal to justice and to your conscience. A war which women and children will suffer the most. That kind of war in this world must be prevented. Thank you. That's an excerpt from <clears throat> Crossings, a documentary now streaming on PBS World Channel. Christina, I was wondering if you can respond to who she is and also this um, Wall Street Journal op-ed, uh, the phony Korean peace movement that personally attacks you and the peace movement saying um, that— the mobilization and the legislation promote the North's demand that the U.S. sign an unconditional peace agreement. Um, I haven't read that piece, but I, I'm, a, I'm aware of that trope. Um, absolutely, this is a legitimate peace movement. And it's not just a peace movement of uh, peace activists across the country that are multi-generational Korean-Americans. These are um, a lot of faith-based leaders, like the United Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church. These are Korean-American leaders who have been involved in engaging with North Korea. They are the ones that actually made the call to President Carter to go on a plane, armed with a CNN camera crew, to go meet with Kim Il-sung, because the Clinton administration was close to conducting a preemptive strike on North Korea. And so this is a well-established, long, multi-generational peace movement that has been calling for the U.S. to replace the ceasefire with a peace agreement. This extends across the border. Just this past weekend, um, masses of South Koreans under the Korea Peace Appeal, which includes over almost 500 civil society organizations, gathered on the streets. They, they protested. They sang songs. We are collectively calling for an end to this war that is threatening the future of 80 million Korean people. But all of us that are in this diaspora that is uh, calling on our government, the Korean people in North and South, they can only deal with their governments. But we in the United States must pressure the United States to do the right thing. As we saw in the last summits between Trump and Kim and Kim and Moon, um, there was a moment where we felt that peace was actually going to break out. But unfortunately, the Trump administration, uh, you know, under John Bolton's leadership, basically did not follow through on some of the commitments that they made. And so here we are in a situation with the Biden administration 
that is basically a return to strategic patience, which is doing nothing. And that result is more, more provocation, more military exercises, the biggest, most dangerous ones on display between the U.S. and South Korea. North Korea, last year, I think they, they tested more than 200 missiles. And actually, there was a CSIS report, Lisa Collins, that actually, I mean, CSIS, but it actually showed that there was an inverse coalition, I mean, correlation, where the more <laughs> military provocations that there are, the less likely there will be engagement. But when there is engagement, active diplomacy, there is very little provocation. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the Korean diaspora uh, uh, here in the United States. Uh, uh, again, for those of folks who don't know the history, th there was a, a, a significant development of the uh, growth of the Korean communities in the United States starting in the 1970s, when uh, uh, Jimmy Carter first began reducing uh, the U.S. troop deployments uh, in South Korea. Could you talk about the direct relationship between the growth of the Korean diaspora and the continued uh, U.S. Uh, uh, military presence in, uh, in South Korea? Well, absolutely. I think that it's also the growth of democracy in South Korea, right? Um, and you, I mean, really, South Korea didn't really fully become a democracy until 1998 with the election of Kim Dae-jung. So um, I would say that it's, it's both. It's the growth and the um, political organizing of Korean diaspora. And now, you know, at this gathering, we've, you know, raised funds in 30 um, under 30 youth will be coming to participate. We see this like new energy with this um, community that um, is unstoppable. We understand this critical history. A lot of it shaped by progressive uh, academics like Bruce Cummings and and the generations that he's taught. Susie Kim, JJ saw the list goes on. And now there's another generation of academics that are teaching this critical history. I think that um, what we're trying to do is challenge the official narrative that uh, the Korean War is a victorious war, that North Korea is bad and South Korea is good, when in fact it is so much more complicated. And I think the U.S. still has to atone for a lot of its um, misdeeds in the past century, whether it's the division of Korea without consulting a single Korean, uh, the brutal military occupation that basically put into power the Koreans that had collaborated with the Japanese during occupation, um, you know, participating and overseeing massacres like the Jeju uh, third, what's called Sasam massacre that killed up to 80,000 people on that island, um, basically using the Cold War to uh, quash, arrest, detain, imprison, and even murder um, those who had any kind of progressive values, whether it's trade union rights or worker rights or gender equality, to be cast as communists. You know, the, the Cold War was fought on the front line. And here we are, 70 years today, because the war never ended, we're in a new Cold War. Yeah, I'd like and to actually, bring in Professor Bruce Cummings of the University of Chicago, a history professor there and an expert on uh, Korea. 
the um, the USS Kentucky became the first U.S. nuclear-armed submarine to come to South Korea since the 1980s. Your response to why, uh, especially now with the, the the Biden administration, there is this uh, this renewal of uh, confrontations uh, with uh, with uh, North Korea. Well, it's really not a renewal. It's just using a different instrument to. Uh, uh, carry out nuclear blackmail against North Korea. Uh, every president for, you know, going back decades has sent uh, nuclear-capable bombers uh, near Korean waters. Uh, Obama did it a lot, Trump, uh, Biden. Uh, and the arrival of a nuclear submarine is, you know, something that hasn't happened for 40 years and it gains attention. Uh, but it's just part and parcel of the uh, nuclear threats that the U.S. has mounted against North Korea. Uh, since the armistice, uh, the armistice itself was uh, ensconced in a kind of uh, cocoon of nuclear blackmail by the Eisenhower and uh, Eisenhower administration and Secretary of State uh, John Foster Dulles. Uh, they made a big show of uh, threatening North Korea and China uh, with nuclear weapons. Uh, they made a big show of blowing off the first nuclear cannon in Nevada, which was on the front pages of many newspapers uh, in the U.S. in May 1953. That cannon shot a 10-kiloton uh, uh, nuclear warhead, about half the size of the Hiroshima uh, bomb. Uh, they detonated an enormous uh, nuclear weapon in the Nevada desert around the same time. Some people thought it was a hydrogen bomb. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, but it was the time when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were doing atmospheric testing of enormous uh, weapons. Uh, Dean Rusk, uh, as uh, Christine said, was became Secretary of State uh, under the Kennedy administration, and he looked through the files to see if this nuclear, these nuclear threats actually brought North Korea and China to the point of signing the armistice, and he concluded that it didn't. Uh, and Eisenhower himself later said that this was mostly for show, uh, and he had to kind of control Dulles, who was uh, uh, always talking about massive retaliation and the use of nuclear weapons. N North Korea had no nuclear weapons from that point until 2006, and yet the U.S. consistently threatened North Korea with nuclear weapons. Uh, Dulles also masterminded the emplacement of tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea, uh, in uh, January 1958, uh, Honest John missiles, uh, tactical nuclear weapons of other types, soon even backpack nukes, uh, which weigh about 60 pounds, and one soldier uh, can uh, carry them and, and place them around uh, any place north of Seoul or near the DMZ. Uh, George H.W. Bush uh, took those nuclear weapons out of South Korea as part of a general uh, drawdown of those weapons on a world scale. Uh, but the U.S. has continued, to, uh, as I said earlier, to threaten North Korea with nuclear weapons. And it's just uh, game theory or deterrence uh, theory 101 that after you threaten a small country with nuclear weapons long enough, they're going to go for their own. Uh, but I have to say, it's always uh, the media attention on North Korea firing off a missile or blowing off a, a, an atomic bomb, and almost never any attention to this decades-long history of American nuclear blackmail. 
Professor Cummings, the Yale University historian Samuel Moyne has said the Korean War was, quote, the most brutal war of the 20th century measured by the intensity of violence and per capita civilian death. Yet the Korean War is also called the Forgotten War. You've said it's more of an unknown war. So as we begin to wrap up, um, if you can talk about where that leads, where you feel it should lead the U.S. today, and the impacts of the sanctions on North Korea, um, especially on the humanitarian situation on the ground there. Well, uh, what Professor Moyne is saying is, is exactly right, and I have to say it's also not anything new. Uh, a revisionist historian on the Vietnam War back, I think, in 1979 published a book where he said that civilian casualties— he had a table. Civilian casualties in Vietnam were uh, 40% of all casualties. And then you look at Korea, 70% of all casualties, uh, which I think is uh, right. Uh, he didn't bother to comment on that. It was an unbelievably dirty war, with the U.S. Air Force raising every uh, North Korean city to the ground. Uh, the U.S. Air Force ran out of targets within a couple of months, uh, but kept pounding North Korea uh, for three years. And this came from the highest level. Uh, Robert Lovett, the defense secretary uh, under Eisenhower, said uh, we should just continue to go on tearing this place up. It'll make it very hard for those people. So it was a kind of genocidal air campaign uh, accompanied by massacres uh, of uh, political massacres of ordinary citizens, especially by South Korea, but also uh, by uh, American soldiers from time to time. So easily the dirtiest war of the 20th century in terms of major, major wars, much worse than Vietnam, which I think will surprise uh, many people. Uh, and Professor Cummings, we only have about a minute left, but I was wondering, uh, you've also said that the Korean War inaugurated the U.S. military-industrial complex. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Well, uh, Harry Truman went into the war with a defense budget of $13.5 billion dollars, and within six months, he had $56 billion. In other words, uh, a quadrupling of defense expenditures to the highest point ever until George Bush exceeded it in 2008. Uh, just an enormous defense budget at a time when the American uh, GDP was much smaller. So defense was about 3%, I believe, maybe 4% of GDP uh, during and after the Korean War, uh, compared to a much smaller percentage today or in 2008. Uh, the Korean War established a national security state at home. Uh, a CIA with so much money they didn't know what to do with it, so they tried to overthrow regimes in Guatemala and Iran uh, in 1953 and 54. Uh, <clears throat> and we established for the first time military bases across the globe, uh, more than 900 today, which most Americans uh, know nothing about. It's an archipelago of empire surrounding, especially China, uh, but we have an Africa command. I mean, it's just all over the place. And all of this got going, not with World War II, when Roosevelt wanted to demobilize, and Truman continued that for a couple of years, uh, but with the uh, Korean War. Well, Bruce Cummings, we want to thank you so much for being with us. History professor at University of Chicago, author of several books on Korea, including Korea's Place in the Sun, A Modern History in North Korea, Another Country. And we want to thank Christine An, founder and executive director of Women Cross DMZ, a global movement of women mobilizing to end the Korean War, also coordinator of the Korea Peace Now campaign. 
Up next, an eyewitness to the assassination of Malcolm X reveals for the first time he overheard a New York police officer ask about one of Malcolm's assassins. Is he with us? Stay with us. Must I Wonder by Nina Simone. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at the assassination of Malcolm X, shot dead inside the Audubon Ballroom, February 21st, 1965. On Tuesday, a witness to the assassination revealed for the first time he overheard a New York police officer asking about Malcolm's assassin, Is He With Us?, the eyewitness, Mustafa Hassan, spoke Tuesday alongside Malcolm's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, and civil rights attorney Ben Crump at a news conference at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, housed in the former Audubon Ballroom. In February, the Shabazz family announced plans to file a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against a number of institutions, including the FBI, the CIA, the New York Police Department, concealing evidence of their involvement in the assassination. At the time of Malcolm's assassination, Mustafa Hassan was a member of the OAAU—that's the Organization of Afro-American Unity, part of Malcolm's security detail. Hassan later fled the country, fearing for his life. He described what happened inside and outside the ballroom when Malcolm was shot. There was a loud explosion that immediately caused further disruption, capturing everyone's attention. Now, a series of gunshots, number 10, then rang out from another direction, and I immediately ran from my post in the entrance and witnessed Malcolm X being shot. Number 11, I immediately started to make my way from the back of the Audubon, where I had been posted, and towards the stage where Malcolm X was located. However, the scene became chaotic as people frantically ran around seeking exits to cover and protect themselves. Number 12, I saw a man running down the aisle towards the exit where I had been posted with a gun in his hand. I made the decision to attempt to stop this person because he had a gun in his hand and was heading directly towards me. Number 13, I managed to knock this person down and I continued towards the stage where Malcolm X was lying on his back surrounded by his followers. 
I know now that the identity of the man with the gun is Talmadge X. Hayer, also known as Thomas Hagen. When I arrived at the stage, I saw that Malcolm X was in grave condition, seemingly close to death, and as a result, my extreme distress and anger, I turned attention back to the man who I had seen running away, knowing that he had a part of responsibility for what I had just witnessed. Number 16. I would later see the same man outside as he was, was being beaten by Malcolm's followers, while a group of policemen who suddenly showed up on the scene asked if he was with us, while at the same time holding back Malcolm's followers from beating him. Can you repeat that? Yes. I would later see the same man outside as he was being beaten by Malcolm's followers while a group of policemen who suddenly showed up on the scene asking, is he with us? That was Mustafa Hassan reading from his own affidavit. He was inside the Audubon Ballroom when Malcolm X was assassinated 58 years ago, 1965. During Tuesday's news conference, I had a chance to question Mustafa Hassan. Did you ever approach the police or the FBI, the authorities, to share what you had seen? No, no, and no. No. Because? Because? They had just killed Malcolm. <laughs> Terrorism. Uh, trauma. Because in my, my belief, they, they were the Malcolm. perpetrators. And they knew more than I did. That's it consequence of being the perpetrators of the uh, event. Why would I go to them? Go to them? And um, for whatever reason they called me, as the attorneys stated, the reason that they failed to call me would have been that my testimony uh, would have uh, changed the outcome of the trial. It would have pointed a finger of guilt at the establishment. That was Mustafa Hassan speaking Tuesday about the assassination of Malcolm X. Three men were later convicted of killing Malcolm X. One was Talmadge Hayer, the man Mustafa saw shoot Malcolm. Two other men, Khalil Islam and Muhammad Aziz, were arrested and imprisoned for decades after being falsely accused. In 2021, the two of them were exonerated. By then, Khalil Islam had already died and Muhammad Aziz was 83 years old. We're joined now by civil rights attorney Ben Crump, representing Malcolm X's family. Ben, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of this testimony for the first time being heard, this eyewitness account of Mustafa Hassan, and where this fits into the lawsuit you'll be filing. Well, thank you for having me, Amy, and thank you for being at the press conference. Um, Mustafa Hassan's testimony for the first time in 58 years is astonishing, especially the level of detail that he chronicled uh, that was corroborated by the photographs as well as the stock video that when the convicted murderer, Talmadge X, was being uh, manhandled by Malcolm's supporters who had just witnessed him kill Malcolm X or shoot Malcolm X, the police ran up and they were asking, 
is he with us? And then as Mr. Mustafa Hassan believes, they were trying to help get him away where he could escape from the black supporters who, of Malcolm who was trying to make sure that he was captured. And so Mustafa, and you see it in the photographs, grabs onto his collar very tightly. And the police seem, as the photograph suggested, be trying to separate him from the person who they had just saw shoot Malcolm. And this is Mustafa's belief. And when he puts it in context that the police are saying, is he with us? It suggests to him that the police were involved. Now, Amy, this is what we are arguing is completely new evidence that has never been presented before this new information. And the fact that we know fraudulent concealment is a theory that will allow us to toll the statute of limitations and for Malcolm's family to have a chance at getting some measure of justice after all these years, because we know that the government concealed the fact that they had multiple informants in the Audubon ballroom on May 21st, 1965, when Malcolm was assassinated. So essentially, those informants were kept isolated. Those New York police department undercover officers like Eugene Roberts and Ray Woods were all kept isolated from one another. And the police, we believe, knew when they arrived on the scene that they had undercover informants in there and they didn't know what their assignments were and they didn't know who they were, but they were told some of the black people are undercover informants. And that is why Mr. Hassan said he, they were saying, is he with us? Well, Benjamin Krupp, uh, why has it taken over 58 years for this to come forward? Could you tell us a little bit about who Mustafa Hassan is and uh, perhaps why he was never questioned? Well, obviously, he was a, a young man who believed in the principles and philosophies of Malcolm X. He was a member of the OAAU, uh, and he was a person who believed that black people had a right to self-determination and that the American government could not continue to oppress us and deny us liberty. And so after they killed Malcolm, like so many people in America, especially black Americans who believed in the principles that Malcolm X was trying to uh, articulate to the world that he left America and for not just his personal safety, but his family's safety. And as he stated, he was worried about where America was headed to as a society. And so he left for months, came back, and saw that they were having this trial 
The police never approached him. The prosecutors never approached him. He was readily identifiable on all the photographs, all the video. Everybody uh, knew that he was a part of that OAAU. They had sign-in for the registrations and so forth. And so it was clear that had they wanted him to testify about everything he saw firsthand, he could have. But they never did that. And we think that is more telling than anything. Very quickly, Ben, before we move on to another subject uh, about where you are right now, you're a Florida resident, wanted to ask you about the uh, state of the lawsuit. Um, you are suing uh, federal authorities, CIA, FBI, state, New York State, New York City, the NYPD, um, talking about all of those agencies involved, the two men who were exonerated, although they'd served decades in prison, one dead, one still alive, uh, have settled for millions of dollars. Um, will you be able to use information based on their settlement for the—in um, pursuing this $100 million settlement for the Shabazz family? We believe, Amy, we will be able to use a lot of the discovery that the great lawyers uh, with the Innocence Project, uh, Barry Sheck and others, use to help exonerate those individuals and help them get their compensation because the concealment affected their liberty, but it also affected Betty Shabazz's inability to be able to bring a wrongful death lawsuit for the assassination, the conspiracy to assassinate her husband, the minister Malcolm X. Ben, I wanted to ask you, uh, Juan, did you have another question on the Malcolm X assassination? Uh, no, no, go ahead, Amy. All right, let me introduce the clip, uh, and this is uh, in Florida. I want to switch topics and ask you about the Republican presidential contender, your governor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's doubled down on the Florida Board of Education's new rules <clears throat> that require educators to teach students that enslaved black people, quote, develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. On Friday, Governor DeSantis defended the curriculum. I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. Um, but the reality is, all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. And if you have any questions about it, just ask the Department of Education. You can talk about those folks. But, I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was, um, that was done politically. The NAACP has called Florida's new curriculum a, quote, sanitized and dishonest telling of history of slavery in America. And, Ben Crump, the last time you were in New York at the Audubon Ballroom, you were threatening to sue DeSantis in the state of Florida. Uh, he's talking about what he calls, really, the upside of slavery. Slavery. Yeah, Amy, it's deplorable. It is sickening. It is astonishing that in 2023, we could have a person who is the second in contention for the Republican nomination telling his uh, supporters and his state that he governs that it is going to be mandated now that students in Florida, from middle school on, 
will have to be taught that slavery have positive benefits. And it is asinine on every level. It has the potential to cause serious psychological trauma to African-American students. And we will not stand for it. We will explore every possible legal remedy in the court of law. I know uh, activists, civil rights leaders, ministers, uh, business leaders, all throughout the black community who will fight in the court of public opinion against this heresy. It is, I mean, it is akin to trying to teach the next generation, the young people, that slavery was not that bad. And if we don't teach our children true history and they don't learn from the sins of the past, then it is very likely that we will repeat those horrors and we will not allow that to happen. Uh, and Ben Crump, we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you also about another mushrooming scandal of Northwestern in the Northwestern University athletic program. You represent Lloyd Yates, uh, a, a former quarterback and wide receiver with uh, the Northwestern football team. Could you talk about the importance of what's happening there? Yes, Lloyd Yates, a courageous young man uh, who was the quarterback for the Northwestern University football team, whose coach, uh, Fitzgerald, has been fired amidst this hazing scandal, was the first named plaintiff to file a lawsuit, the first person not to uh, stay behind anonymity, but put his name and face out there, launching what I believe I want to be the Me Too moment for college sports that we hopefully will eradicate this physical, psychological, and in Laura's case, and many others at Northwestern, sexual hazing. And it's no way they can justify this. It needs to be condemned and not condoned in any manner. And we believe just like with the sexual abuse scandals at Michigan State and Ohio State, that Northwestern needs to step up and set a precedent for what will not be tolerated. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump, we thank you so much for joining us, was in New York yesterday, today in Miami, Florida. That does it for our show. Congratulations to Igor Moreno on the birth of his daughter, Alicia Anya Moreno Camarena. Welcome to the world, Alicia. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for interns in our archive and development departments. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenup, Jarena Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. To see transcripts and our video and audio podcasts of each show, go to democracynow.org, as well as our extended interview with Isabel Allende. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.